0: I applaud your being at this event. For many of you, this is a costly trip, I expect. One that you wouldn't make if you didn't have a passion for improving your serve in the classroom. I love seeing that passion. And my prayer has been that your time here will equip you to more fully live into your vocation and live out your, voc- your vocation, the vocation God has given you, really to, to so that you can more effectively carry out the Great Commission in your sphere. I wouldn't presume to guess what your experience with the spiritual disciplines has been like, but I'm going to give you a... Snapshot, or maybe you 'd call it a video clip of my experience with them in an adventure that happened about twenty five years ago. While this experience was not not a unique experience, neither was it um, completely representative of my experience during that era of my life um, it was I should say it was it was kind of one of those in-betweens, where it was perhaps the exaggerated form, but not, um, but not uncommon in some ways. I suppose what made it memorable, memorable was the pivotal decision I was making at the time. Um, yeah, you'll hear. The background to the story is this. One year after I graduated from high school, the board of our uh, church school asked me to step in for a year until they could find a a long-term replacement for the long-term teacher that was retiring, resigning. That year turned into two, and in the process, I discovered that I really enjoyed that work. Several years later, I decided to move in the direction of teaching as a career. So I enrolled in a local community college, After two and a half years there, I was looking for a place to pursue a degree. Through a complex series of connections, an acquaintance of mine from New York City found out about both my interest in pursuing education and my interest in urban ministry. And he gave me a call. He was directing a small ministry called Urban International Outreach in uh, um, Jackson, close to Jackson Heights, New York, actually, I think it was Flushing, New York. He was tar- they were targeting foreign students, international students who came to the US to go to school and, being new, um, found themselves hungry for friendship. I eventually made an exploratory trip and was quickly drawn to the ministry and its possibilities. When I returned to Kansas, I, I shared my uh, excitement with my friends and was a little stumped when one of them asked me, well, what are you waiting for? Well, I stammered, I, I guess I'm waiting for a green light. I didn't know what that green light was supposed to look like, but I was pretty sure I hadn't gotten it yet. Time slipped on, and finally I decided it was time to get serious about this. So I took some time off and headed off to a lake to camp for several days, hoping to discern God's will and prayer and fasting and scripture intake, journaling. This wasn't new to me. I'd done some times of solitude before, but it was longer than anything I had done previously. Well, I started off with what for me was was fairly routine, Due to poor planning, I got up there late and uh, ended up trying to find a campsite in the dark. I hope some other males in this group know what this is like. But I had this crazy need, had, hmm, maybe I should almost make that had slash have, this crazy need for checking out all the possibilities before I could settle on one of them. And if you've ever tried doing that around a man-made lake in Kansas, you'll know that it involves driving a lot of miles, backcountry miles. And in the end, um, not necessarily being all that much wiser for the effort. So it was late when I finally settled down. <clears throat> not being a very frequent tenter, I didn't sleep all that soundly which meant that I wasn't overly ambitious the next morning and probably not thinking all that clearly either. But I was here to listen to God, so I, well, I tried to do just that. Now, you'd think that with my explorations the night before, I'd be ready to settle down in my campsite, maybe stroll around on some trails and just commune with God. But I was finding it really hard to concentrate. I kept wondering what was on the other side of the lake or across that creek or around that thicket. I think now, as I look back on it, I was getting bored because I could only ask God the same question about so many different ways, and then I didn't know what else to say. I should probably also mention here that that during the night I heard noises from some loud party that sounded like teenagers not too far away. I couldn't hear clearly what was going on, but I had a a good idea they were engaging in wholesome and possibly immoral activities. I didn't want to, but my mind kept replaying scenes of what I imagined might have been going on at that party. And in my restlessness... I found myself almost somehow wishing that I had gone over there. You can be sure this was not a godly curiosity. Well, I kept trying to reign in my mind and read and journal and pray and sing. I had a mission. I was here for a reason. I wanted to get an answer before I left. Somewhere into the second day, wouldn't you know it, I started getting sick. It might have been the fasting. It might have been the sleep deprivation. Who knows? Um, but it certainly didn't help me think more clearly. The rest of the time, my mitt was was just kind of a blur, <clears throat> and I never felt I got a super clear word from the Lord. But I did get some insight from the Book of Acts that I felt was as good a sense of direction as I was probably going to get. I can't remember how it ended, but I'm confident I was relieved it was done. Now, wouldn't you say that sounds like a spiritual giant in the making? (laughs) Um, If you're smiling, I, I hope it's because you have some level of identity with my struggle. And I don't mean to give the impression that my current experience has nothing in common with that, but I am grateful to say that I think I've made some progress. And in my study on this topic, I became confident, actually, that there is hope for me and hope for any of you whose struggle with the spiritual disciplines leaves you feeling like there's got to be a better way. What I'm going to do next should probably be introduced with a confession of sorts here, and I'll let my story, let a story about my family, uh, help with this. A few of them are here, but I, I think, but I um, probably shouldn't make them stand. So I'll show you a picture of them. Um, that's my lovely wife Brenda there. Next to her is our 15-year-old son Brayden. Shalana and Clarissa are twins, they're 13, and Jariah is 9. <clears throat> My brother Wendell was preaching at a neighboring church in our area, and since we rarely had the chance to hear him, Braden and I slipped away from our church in time to listen, to get in on his sermon. When we came home, the others were asking about it. Well, Braden said, he sounds a lot like Dad. Then someone asked, did he make the people talk to each other like Dad does? Braden replied, no, that's one of Dad's quirks. <laughs> Just like that, Jiraiya spun on his heel and made sure I got the point. He smirked up at me and said, um, Inherent flaw. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know. <clears throat> and I should warn you that this inherent flaw will probably surface multiple times this week. Now, after a bit, you'll be victims of the first instance of that. The, uh, the question I would like for you to consider is this. What are the spiritual disciplines? Now, just to make sure we get beyond the basics when you discuss this, I'm going to start with a few quick lists. I, I'm doing this not because it's uh, somehow the most important, but because I want to spend most of our time this morning focusing on answering this question from a more foundational perspective. But with these lists, I, I, I want to issue a warning. I, I tell you, I continue to be a little twitchy when somebody tries to, to present an exhaustive list of some kind that he has compiled from Scripture. I'll stick my neck out. A classic example of this is the lists you see of the spiritual gifts. Yes, I firmly believe that God gives gifts through his Spirit. Yes, I believe that we are to exercise our spiritual gifts. But it isn't clear to me that taking a list from a passage of Scripture or multiple passages of Scripture and adding our own definitions and characteristics to them will result in an exact list of all the spiritual gifts that God gives. These, no more, no less. In the same tone... I'm cautious about how I talk about the spiritual disciplines. It makes me think of the subtitle of a book I once received. It was Solving the 24 Problems Men Face. Oh, really? I must have miscounted. I thought there were 23. Uh, ladies, tell me, how many problems do you face? <laughs> um, Well, I understand the desire to wrap our minds around a concept of something like the spiritual disciplines, just like I try to fix the 24 problems I've got, but I have not tried to come up with an exhaustive uh, exact list. And I'm confident that none of the sources that I'm listing here would represent theirs in that way either. So, now that you've seen that, now that you've heard my question, I'm going to give you a chance to engage more fully. Turn to somebody beside you and talk for between one or two minutes about what, whoops, I went too far, what are the spiritual disciplines? You may begin. All right, maybe we'll call that good enough for now. Now, I bet if you got that level of participation in your classroom, you'd be pretty happy. Good for you. I'd like to hear from you. Just, just uh, start shouting about out here quickly. What are some of the things that they are or that they aren't? I should have mentioned, you, you, could, uh, you should be looking also at what they aren't as, as part of the definition. Holler it out. Okay. We're not going to waste too much time on that if you uh, just keep thinking. Before I show you my list, let's look at the origin of this term, spiritual discipline. Sources that I read point to the word in Scripture that is translated in English as training or discipline. You'll recognize the transliteration of the the Greek word that these, these come from. The verb form is gymnazō and the noun is gymnasia. And yes, you can see it's how we get our word gymnasium. Thayer's defines it thus: to exercise vigorously in any way, either body, either the body or the mind. <clears> 1 <throat> Timothy 4 has both of these forms. If you're looking at the uh, session notes for today, you'll see that there, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The first use there was the verb... And the second one, um, bodily training, is the noun. While you're on your notes page, take a look at Hebrews 12, verse 11. The word discipline in the ESV, uh, which is chastening, in the King James, shows up about four times in this passage. It comes from a different Greek word than what we're looking at here, but the meanings are similar. The word trained there at the end is the verb Gumnazo, just like First Timothy. For the moment, all discipline seems, rather, seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This makes me think <clears throat> of um, what a former coach of the Dallas Cowboys said about training. The job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. I think that's pretty ethical, don't you? Train yourself for godliness. Keep this instruction in mind because it includes a pivotal concept that I'll come back to after a bit. Now let me start on my list of what the disciplines are or are not. First, let me say that the disciplines are not a replacement for grace. Let's just get that out of the way right from the start. Exercising the disciplines cannot earn our salvation. It cannot pay for our sins. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works etc. This is Scripture, this is Orthodox Christianity. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. On this point, the vast majority of Christendom, past and present has stood together. However, listen to this probing question from Dallas Willard. Why is it that we look upon our salvation as a moment that began our religious life instead of the daily life we receive from God? And your mind will probably quickly go to Paul's exhortation to the Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I'll come back to that question, that concept more tomorrow. The disciplines are also not simply improving ourselves by willpower. Take a look at Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him referring to Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's paradoxical, isn't it? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Consider also the sentence immediately following the Philippians one I just quoted. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Further, the disciplines are not asceticism. Consider Colossians 2.20 and the verses following. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, I quickly admit, I'm not sure what all this passage means, but it certainly looks like asceticism to me. I think it's probable that Paul is addressing the Gnostic heresy here, which said essentially that that spirit was good and the body or the physical was evil. But whatever Paul is referring to here, it doesn't help in restraining our carnality, our fleshly responses to life. So see if my deductions make sense to you here. If we can assume that what Paul referred to in 1 Timothy 4 about training for godliness included the spiritual disciplines... Let's say specifically the disciplines of abstinence, then the disciplines do have value. They must therefore be different from what Paul is referring to here in Colossians, because he says these have no value. So it doesn't answer all the questions, but it tells us there's a distinction. If you've got your Bible's handy, turn to 1 Timothy 4. I'd like to show you context here. You'll see that Paul is urging Timothy to take a strong stance against some heresy. This is some strong language. He calls these false teachers hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. They are forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from some foods. There is some variation in opinion um, on what Paul is referring to here. The primary suspects are an early form of Gnosticism or uh, conservative Jewish thought, the Judaizers. But whatever the case, note several things here by what Paul says in these verses. God may call some people to celibacy, I I believe we can safely deduce that from 1 Corinthians 7. But a general forbidding of marriage is heresy. Secondly, from verses 3 and 4, it is clear that God created all food to be enjoyed. Let's not get distracted for the moment with the hedonism hedonism, sorry, that, that wrongly uses this good gift. It's no small problem in the 21st century, but that's a bunny trail and we won't go down it today. The point is that forbidding certain kinds of food as a means to godliness is wrong. Paul told Timothy to expose these heresies and then said, rather, rather discipline yourself for godliness. Here's a quote from Richard Foster where he contrasts asceticism with what he calls the discipline of simplicity. Asceticism and simplicity are mutually incompatible. Occasional superficial similarities in practice must never obscure the radical difference between the two. Asceticism renounces possession. Simplicity sets possessions in proper perspective. Asceticism finds no place for a land flowing with milk and honey. Simplicity rejoices in this gracious provision from the hand of God. Asceticism finds contentment only when it is abased. Simplicity knows contentment in both abasement and abounding. That's food for thought. Note also that the disciplines are not a means of controlling God. Philip Yancey tells the story of Ben Patterson, who has recently retired from his role as chaplain at Westmont College. At the time of this incident, Ben was the sole pastor of his church. Ben had a ruptured disc in his spine and for six weeks was flat on his back. His mind was groggy from heavy medication, uh, making making even reading, meaningful reading, impossible. He says at that time, I was helpless. I was also terrified. He was worried about providing for both his family and the church. Out of sheer desperation, he writes, I decided to pray for the church. Using the church directory as his guide, he spent two hours daily praying for all the members of his congregation. Quote, it was not piety that made me do it. It was boredom and frustration. But over the weeks, the prayer times grew sweet. One day near the end of my convalescence, I was praying and I told the Lord, you know, it's been wonderful these prolonged times we've spent together. It's too bad I don't have a time to do this when I'm well. God's answer came swift and blunt. He said to me, Ben, you have just as much time when you're well as when you're sick. It's the same 24 hours in either case. The trouble with you is that when you're well, you think you're in charge. When you're sick, you know you're not. Hmm. Exercising the disciplines doesn't give us some leverage with God. Quite the contrary. If the disciplines do anything for us, they should put us in an humble stance as learners or beggars. They should show us more keenly how dependent we are on God. One more negative for now. The disciplines are not externally imposed. Now, it seems to me that this is fairly self-evident. I think of Jesus' interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees in this regard. If you can't force God's grace on someone, then surely you can't force them to open themselves to this grace, which I think is what the disciplines do. I obviously believe that encouraging the practice of the disciplines is legitimate, or I wouldn't be here. But imposing them is against the nature of the gospel. God invites us to participate in his salvation. Now, this is a a critical point to note, and its implication kind of wanders ahead into the why of the disciplines. But Foster quotes Leo Tolstoy with this profound observation. Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Doesn't that size it up well? I think we should probably find it indicting. Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Let's start with openly, with voluntarily opening ourselves to change and see if that doesn't do more for changing the world than imposing change on others does. Now let's get a little more positive. First, the disciplines are the right way to combat sin. <clears throat> Foster cites um, Isaiah 5720 in describing the effect of sin. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. This is a natural effect of sin. And sin is a natural part of our lives, just like the waves are a natural part of the sea. And how do we combat it? Listen to Foster's assessment. I think I have this. Our ordinary method of dealing with ingrained sin is to launch a frontal attack. We rely on our willpower and determination. Whatever may be the issue for us, anger, fear, gluttony, bitterness, pride, lust, substance abuse, we determine never to do it again. We pray against it, fight against it, set our will against it. But the struggle is all in vain. And we find ourselves once again morally bankrupt, or worse yet, proud of our external righteousness. Does that sound familiar? It, it matches my experience especially in my younger years, and it matches my observation. So what is the solution? Well, it starts with the awareness that this approach is, isn't the solution to sinful patterns. The solution is, quote, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, as Romans 5 describes it. That comes through Jesus Christ. So we reason maybe, sometimes, we reason that means there is nothing we can do. Instinctively, we can't fully accept that conclusion, but we struggle to find a path through these these twin quagmires. Foster has it right, I believe, when he identifies the spiritual disciplines as an other gift from God, one that positions us to receive the gift of his grace. The disciplines are a gift that position us to receive his grace. He says, the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Donald Whitney lists four things that define spiritual disciplines. He says that disciplines are something we do, not something we are, not an attitude, something we do. In the titles in my sessions, I asked three questions that had the word do in them. I kind of winced about that. I guess it sounded too flat or maybe too much like self-effort. Shouldn't I have said, why should we engage in them or maybe embrace them? Well, the truth is, disciplines are something we do. Quinney says, as practices, the spiritual disciplines are first about doing and then about being. The spiritual disciplines are right doing that leads to right being. That is, the purpose of doing the practices known as spiritual disciplines is a state of being described. The state of being, sorry, right there wrong, is a state of being described in 1 Timothy 4 7 as godliness. Second, he emphasizes that the disciplines are biblical practices. All of our activities, I trust, well, all of our activities should be Christ centered, and if we're living in integrity, they will be God honoring. But harvesting the tomatoes or playing soccer with my family is not equivalent to memorizing scripture or fasting. While I'm not encouraging a rigid list, you know that, I think that we can probably, without too much controversy, come together on practices either taught or exemplified by Jesus and the apostles. Third, Whitney asserts that the disciplines are sufficient for godliness. Hinging on the previous point, he quotes uh, 1 Timothy three sixteen and 17. You'll recognize that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If, Whitney posits, Scripture is profitable for these different things, and if the man of God can be complete and equipped for every good work, then what Scripture contains is sufficient for godliness. Said another way, if we need to know it or do it to be complete or perfect, as the King James renders it, then the Bible will tell us. Let me flesh that out a bit. This is harking back to the asceticism issue of a few minutes ago. It's possible, even probable, that there are foods available to us that are not good for our physical health. Or at least, or they're at least problematic in excessive quantities. Now I grant that God calls us to be good managers of our bodies, and that should inform the way we eat, most definitely. But unless Scripture forbids its consumption, we make a mistake to make a godliness issue out of it. So if you feel better by avoiding or limiting gluten or sugar or meat or caffeine intake, go for it. But don't make it a moral issue. The same could be said for any activity. It's not wrong to not wash your car on Saturday. Did you know that? As much as I'd like to, I can't categorically call all video games sin. I have no problem telling my children that they can't play them because it's a waste of their brains and time. But I'm not going to tell them that video games, by their very nature, are sinful. Some activities involve things that are immoral or counter to the Spirit of Christ. Some activities tend quickly toward idolatry. Some activities may offend my or my brother's conscience. These are all legitimate reasons to avoid them. But if the Bible doesn't require them or forbid them, then let's be clear about that. Only those disciplines that Scripture teaches, whether of abstinence or engagement... Only those are required for equipping us for godliness. I'll finish Whitney's list for the sake of representing him fairly, but I'll pass over them without comment since I'm addressing the same points in depth later. <clears throat> he observes that the disciplines are derived from the gospel, not divorced from it. And his last point is that the disciplines are means, not ends. And I'll launch from that point as a wrap-up. It's really simply my, my my wrap-up is really a restatement of that point. And I would say this. Finally and most foundationally, I propose that the disciplines are not a replacement for relationship. They are not a replacement for relationship. Nor are they any way, or are they a way to force a relationship. Here is a quote from Matthew Jacoby: We humans are constantly trying to create relationships with other people by impressing them, attracting them, and appealing to their desire to be made happy. It is all highly dysfunctional and delusional. We sense the need for relationships, but in classic human fashion, we try to make things happen rather than to seek to cultivate genuine personal connections. It is no wonder, then, that we apply our dysfunctional interpersonal habits to God. Hmm. No. Rather, the disciplines are a means, perhaps I should say the means, I'm not sure, by which we seek relationship. Someone quickly quote to me the greatest commandment. I'm hearing it somewhere. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirmed these in Matthew 22, verse 37. I'm going to skip right down to where he said it you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and great this is the great and first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets now just to kind of load you up a little bit i'm going to give you several more quotes from um, jacoby the most fundamental implication of the twofold love commandment is this Relationships are to be valued and enjoyed above everything else in life. First our relationship with God, and then our relationships with others. Relationships, in other words, are to be treated as the highest of all ends. Can you live with that? Relationships are to be treated as the highest of all ends. I think that's correct. If we regard our relationship with God as a means to some other end, then the complexity of the relationship will be an annoyance, and we will find ourselves trying to reduce the relationship to a simpler, pragmatic form. We will want to simplify it down to doing certain things. We will want to feel we have fulfilled our spiritual duty by spending half an hour reading the Bible and praying each day and by serving in the church, we will begin to regard these spiritual exercises as regard, as we regard physical exercises. Hmm. Think that one through. You know how it is, right? Grr, it's time to do my push-ups again. I'm really too tired tonight, but I know I should do them. 23. 24. 25. Mm-hmm. Grunt groan. 48. 49. 50. I'm done. I'm going to bed. I think our experience corroborates with his logic. My wife loves, loves shoulder and neck massages. If my fingers could handle it, she would let me do it for hours on end. <clears throat> now I'll be honest, at the end of a long day, I'm not always aching for the chance to give her a massage but usually I do it willingly because I love her. Oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things that I do with her because I value her relationship. Value our relationship. And, and I want it to grow, and I know that where my treasure is, where, where I invest myself, there my heart will be also. Now, someone else could give her a massage In some cultures and eras, a slave would have done that. Uh, In our era, there are servants who will gladly do it for us for a measly $60 an hour. (laughs) Maybe it's not just mothers who are underpaid for their services. I don't know. Someone else could take walks with her, like we do, or take her out to eat. Do you agree that if they did that, that wouldn't make them her husband? In some cases, these activities might build relationships, but not necessarily. Further, I said I do these things because I value a relationship with her, but I could do it for other reasons. I could value peace in the house more than a relationship with her, and I could give her a shoulder massage to keep her from getting cranky. Or I could do it so that she wouldn't nag me about the time I spend working on my pet projects. What would this betray? It would betray that I have made something else a higher end than our relationship. I will leave you with one quote, one more quote from Foster. The disciplines are for the purpose of realizing a greater good. In and of themselves, they are of no value whatever. They have value only as a means of setting us before God so that he can give us the liberation we seek. The disciplines are not the answer. They only lead us to the answer. We must clearly understand this limitation of the disciplines. Sorry. We must clearly understand this limitation of the disciplines if we are to avoid bondage. Not only must we understand, but we need to underscore it to ourselves again and again. So severe is our temptation to center on the disciplines. Let us forever center on Christ and view the spiritual disciplines as a way of drawing us closer to his heart. Allow me, if you will, to pray yet. Lord, I think it's safe in including everybody in this. We've got a long ways to go. We're not... We haven't approached godliness like we want to. And even more basically, we haven't entered into intimacy with you like you have designed us for, like you dream for us to, to be. So, Lord... Cure us from striving and move us into the realm of living the disciplines in a way that will be life-giving, that will be relationship-building. In Jesus' name, amen. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.